Here's your host, Alex Garrett. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. It seems that the New York elites just want to fly. I mean, I honestly never heard of the global entry program until this week when President Trump, after, you know, the the New York liberals refused to cooperate with ICE and whatnot, he said, you know what, then you guys can fly. And someone who has the pulse on that, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jacob, uh, is Jacob Novak. Uh, Jake, I know you wrote this piece in CNBC titled this is a slap in the new york blue elitist uh is this the right move from trump and are well what's your thoughts on it well i do think it's the right move uh even let's forget about terrorism for a second let's forget about national security just for a second i think one of the things that president trump has done very well and he started as a candidate is reminding and let's forget about the democrats and liberals for a second is reminding the republican establishment reminding conservative establishment and i consider myself part of that uh in in many ways that you know you can't forget about the middle of the country you can't forget about the rest of the country so for example you know we saw so many of the republican establishment over the years either looking the other way or supporting things like open borders or supporting the loss of the manufacturing base or looking the other way. And one of the things that President Trump had and at first as a candidate and now as a president has done is reminded again, let's just talk about the Republicans for a second, reminded them that their base of support or their base of possible support and our ticket to victory can be not forgetting about these people. And I think um, I'm very much of the belief that overall illegal immigration is generally not good. But there are some positives to it. You know, if you're a business owner, a national business owner, hotel chain owner, it's great for you. It's great for a lot of different kinds of businesses because it lowers wages. But it has a negative effect on other people. And that's true, by the way, of legal immigration also, which I think almost everyone is for. Certainly, we like the idea of legal immigration, but we have to understand that there are some economic negatives. And President Trump reminds us of that. But until a couple of moves that he made, including this move this week about slowing them down at the airports and, 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 and eliminating this, this perk that you know, richer and more, quote, more important people get at the airport. And it, it's all about the fact that there are pluses and minuses to immigration policy, pluses and minuses to everything, to the things we have to go through for our own security. And too many people were bearing too much of the brunt there. And it's time to spread the pain a little bit, not because we want pain. You know, listen, if we could do it painlessly, then I wouldn't want to, you know, I wouldn't support it. Right. But to have a more secure border and a more secure and, and a fair immigration policy, some pain has to be spread around. And I think that that's what this does. Jake, it sounds like you are on the conservative side of things with this issue now uh the new york state new york state's now suing dhs over this no surprise there but tell my listeners a little bit how this started because this seems to be percolating over the last couple weeks well new york has a couple of things that are already proving disastrous for the democrats it's a one-party state so i repeat myself the the fact that they have two things that are going wrong for them right first is they've basically become more than just a sanctuary state. They've become a state that now is allowing illegal immigrants to get driver's licenses. And that uh, creates some issues for voting registration. I know a lot of uh, fair election people, not just conservatives, are worried about that. But that is really the extreme level of sanctuary state, because there are other states, including blue states, that have sanctuary laws that have come that have made a deal with DHS, made a deal with uh, the federal uh, authorities, and said, "Yeah, we're going to we're going to register illegal aliens 
uh, and allow them to have driver's licenses. But we are we're gonna we're gonna follow we're gonna do whatever you tell us as far as keeping the security um, safe and, and and making sure that people who do have driver's license that apply for these global entry and these fast pass type uh, situations don't uh, breach that issue. New York didn't bother to do that. And you know you said earlier they've decided to file file suit, which is just so frustrating to me. Is there anything that New York State can do that doesn't have to be some kind of virtue signaling? Uh, tell the world they hate Trump. I mean, it would be the easiest thing in the world for Governor Cuomo and Letitia James to do a solid, to do a helpful thing for their constituents simply by doing what the other states have done and cooperate a little bit more with DHS on this matter. And that would be that. That would be an easy way for him to come through for his constituents. But instead, he's decided, no, it's more important for me to show the world and the country how much I hate Trump. And as you know, Alex, there's a daily competition among the left. Who can be the most nasty and mean to, to President Trump. And most of the time it's harmless, but this isn't harmless. There are a lot of New Yorkers, this guy's own constituents, and I assume big-time donors, who are getting screwed by this, and it would have been the easiest thing in the world for him to fix this. Instead, they decided to preen instead, and that's too bad. Well, and now, do you think uh, immigration will be back on the, the minds after impeachment? Will immigration now be the next thing back on? And I think, if so, now's the time Trump can continue to say, hey, we're kicking out violent illegals. Hey, we have to fix this whole uh, mess of immigration. This would be a perfect time for Trump to say that. Uh, it would be, I, you know, I, when you were first asking the question, I thought, well, are, do you think the Democrats are going to try to make an issue out of illegal immigration? Well, if, if, I have to agree with you. If they make an issue out of it, boy, would that be a great um, time for, for that, to, for, for President Trump. You know, for some reason, uh, and I think it is a little bit, I think there are some Democrats who are not delusional, although they may not be saying it publicly. There have to be some Democratic strategists out there, the Mark Pens out there, maybe a Doug Schoen, who know that this Russia excuse and this Facebook ads excuse for losing the 2016 election is all baloney. I have to believe that some of them know that isn't true, whether they're saying it publicly or not. And they know that the key to victory is, is turning Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania back their way. You know, again, precious few, because even James Carville, who did a very good interview with Vox overall, still seems to believe the Russia, you know, the Russia nonsense also. So not even though the rest of his interview was was pretty much on target. So I have to believe that. But if they try to make an issue of illegal immigration and President Trump says, look, again, we're for legal immigration, but we can't have states registering. I mean, the, the national polls or more importantly, the state polls in those Midwestern states that I mentioned. Uh, on favoring or being against allowing illegal immigrants to get driver's licenses and maybe somehow, you know, subverting the the global entry uh, system have got to be at least 60 to 70 or 70 percent in favor of, of what President Trump is doing. So good luck if they try to make an issue of it. President Trump should try to make an issue of it. He should also try to make an issue of of, of the jobs numbers, which, of course, he does all the time. So that's not really a, a different thing for him. But it would yes, it would be very smart for him to say, look, we're doing what we can do on immigration. I'm trying to build the wall. I'm trying to make sure that we have security in this country, and these sanctuary cities are not secure, just like, you know, the other issue I was, I was alluding to before in New York is this bail reform thing. These are two disastrous things for New York alone that could be easily fixed, but, and if they're not, it's going to be very, very bad for the Democrats. Well, you know, this also came to a head at the State of the Union, where Trump, mm-hmm. you know, President Trump, blatantly called out de Blasio in New York, and of course, instead of saying, you're right, we messed up, de Blasio had to say, how dare you say that, uh, because Mayor Bill you know he called your bluff on that one. So that's why you reacted that way. Uh, but to put it in, in the State of the Union to 
And when he does something like that, uh, Jake Novak, I feel like he's in touch with the American people because he sees the news happening right before his eyes, and he's not afraid to comment on it. No, and he's on his way to commenting about this bail reform thing. He has not yet talked about it. Now, he talked about that 92-year-old grandmother incident in the context of Sanctuary City. Um, it, it, to me, and another column I wrote for CNBC three weeks ago was talking about this bail reform disaster that's about to happen because it already is happening. And it's, and it's the Democrats, it's states, state senators who are Democrats on Long Island where I live who have immediately realized that this is going to kill them in the elections in November and they've got to fix this bail reform law. But boy, are they going to be behind the eight ball if they don't fix this before President Trump starts making an issue out of it. This is a tailor-made issue. And yeah, he's calling out de Blasio. He can call out Cuomo on this as well. This was their idea. They supported it. And when I wrote that column, there were people saying, this is disgusting. How dare you uh, want this law changed just because it might help the, you know, I guess they thought I was trying to help the Democrats, which is funny because I, I've given the Democrats billions of dollars of free advice over the years. They never take it, which makes it very easy for me to write. <laughs> but, you know, it, they won't do it. And uh, but my point was, actually, it's also it's also uh, it's, it, did they think I was pushing for something that was immoral just to help the Democrats win an election? No, it, it, this is immoral. What they're doing, the bail reform law is absolutely immoral. People, who do you think's being the victims of these guys getting out of prison early? It's not rich people on Park Avenue. They're, they're attacking other poor people. They, they, they just raped some woman for, you know, sadly, at the Bay Ridge subway station at like yeah. three in the morning. I promise you no one making over five hundred thousand dollars is at the Bay Ridge subway station at five at three in the morning so this is uh, absolutely something the democrats have got to get out in front of and again every day that they spend talking about impeachment which is you know over but they want to do it again I'm every sure day they, they talk yep. about this russia nonsense is a loss for them because they're not addressing what they need to do to win so jake are you uh, uh what what line spectrum uh, party line do you fall under normally it sounds like you're very pro-trump on this issue but are you with him all the way or what what where do you fall well, you know, it's funny. When people talk about presidential candidates, I was hoping that, this, that President Trump would fix this. I was hoping that President Trump would wake up both people on the right and the left. But you've got to stop talking about candidates like you're, like, you know, in a personal way. Uh, I don't know Donald Trump. I'm never, I probably will never know him. I can only judge him by his policies. And I'd say over 90% of his policies I enthusiastically have supported. I've, I've been very happy with the policies overall. I think the one negative has been the spending and the budget. And I, apparently I'm hearing rumors that he's going to start addressing that soon. So I hope that works. But overall, that's where I fall. Now, it's about his policies. Now, if there were a candidate that would come around that would have better policies, then I would absolutely consider him or her. But there's nothing like that on the horizon right now. Um, and I think most of the American people, based on what I know about polling, are actually not far from me, even though we keep hearing about the leftward shift and all that kind of stuff. And we know that from the polling. For example, if I ask 100 Americans what they think about a wall at the southern border and, and, and border security, I'm going to get 65 percent support. If I call it Trump's wall... Right. Then I'm going to get only 40 percent support. So you can see how this works. But if you're able to separate that out, and most voters can't, if you can separate the man from the policy, then, you know, I think the policies are actually a slam dunk. This wouldn't even be a close situation. Well, the Democrats, I, oh. however, lucky for Trump, they don't have anyone who's personally persuasive, more, more personally persuasive than he is. And for all of his negatives, you know, it's like that old joke about running away from the bear in the campsite. You don't have to be faster than the bear. Alex, you got to be faster than the other campers. That's the only thing you have to do. And, you know, 
one of the reasons why Donald Trump is surging in the polls right now is the Democratic candidates have gone from generic Democrat. You know, people say, well, I'll vote for any Democrat over Trump. But then they get to see these candidates now, right? We've had a, right. We've had a caucus. We didn't have a result, but we've had a caucus. <laughs> We're getting into these primaries. The American people are actually seeing the opponent. Don't forget, a big reason why Donald Trump is president is because he ran against Hillary Clinton. And he's probably going to get reelected because he's running against one of the existing candidates right now, including people who are thinking about getting in and aren't in, none of whom are more persuasive than he is, even though I think that he's got some persuasion problems. But he's definitely more persuasive than any of these Democrats I'm seeing. And let's not forget that I don't care if you're Einstein or have a third grade education, we vote with that emotional connection that we make. I don't care how smart you are. When you hear people saying, I only vote based on the issues and the facts, they're not telling you the truth. So even though I just told you I like most of his policies, I'm telling you he's more persuasive than these other people I see, not because I have such a positive feeling about his persuasion, but I see what the Democrats, I saw what Hillary Clinton, I mean, I, for example, I, I mostly supported Bill Clinton, mostly, not, not all the time, okay. but mostly, but I never liked her. I could, I, and, and you know what? That's not fair. Maybe, maybe it's not fair, but I never liked her, even when I was liking some of the things that Bill Clinton was doing. So that tells you where, you know, where, how and where people vote. And when you understand that, you understand American politics. And by the way, you talk about the, the primary, you know, if they can't even get their own election straight, how can we get border, how can they get border security straight? I mean, it, it's that kind of analogy. Uh, and I really don't know. It might be the coin flip, the coin they flipped in Iowa against Trump. This is how bad it's got for the Democrats right now. Um, but in 2016, so you weren't a fan of Hillary. Um, were you a fan of Bernie or did you did you actually follow Trump's uh, campaign more? Oh, no, I, um, you know, I, I was one of those people who was hoping that one of those establishment Republicans would win the nomination. I, 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 I preferred Cruz to Trump. I preferred Rubio to Trump. And then about March of 2016, I said to myself, well, why, why is Trump winning these primaries? And is it something that, you know, and I, boy, do I wish a lot of other Republicans thought this way, although I think they eventually came around to it. And I thought to myself, you know, wait a minute, maybe this is me. Maybe this is me thinking that I had more, you know, because I've been writing editorial columns from a conservative point of view for years going into 2016. Maybe I'm the one who's a little bit out of touch. Now, I always thought I was less out of touch because I was born in Oklahoma City. I lived half my life in the South. I lived a lot of my life in the Midwest. I wasn't in a New York bubble, I didn't think. But I guess I was. And I was realizing and remembering some of my some of the things that I, I had always kind of known in the back of my head that, that Republican establishment types, just like Democrat establishment types, were not listening to a large cross section of the country. We're not really getting in touch. And it was around April or May that I realized that Trump was going to win. And before you give me any kind of crown of prediction, it took me about another month to have the guts to write that editorial for, for CNBC. I wrote it on the last day of May. We published it on June 1st of 2016, where I said the headline was, I was wrong. Donald Trump will be the next president of the United States. Hmm. And I realized that. And it, it was a real point of humility because I had been wrong. And the reason and it wasn't you know, this is, it's OK to be wrong. But the reason I was wrong was bad. I was wrong because I wasn't understanding that issues like immigration, like issues like the shrinking of the manufacturing base were more important than I was giving credit for. And I should have listened to those voices before Donald Trump came around. And now I see a president who has mostly uh, fulfilled his promises, who has, you know, listen, I, I don't care about his personal conduct because I don't believe in kings and I don't believe in queens and I don't worship presidents. You know, one of the things that scares me the most is when people would talk about Obama like a messiah right. or like Bill Clinton, like he was their friend. He, these people are neither. It doesn't mean they're bad people necessarily, but you, you don't know them. Stop worshiping them. Um, and to me, that was something that, you know, as I've been beyond that for a long time. It doesn't make me better. It's just one of the, maybe it makes me more bitter. <laughs> I don't know. But the point is, 
that's where I came down. And, you know, it wasn't just a prediction that I made it that it was published on June 1st. I had to spend the next five months defending that position every day. My bosses at CNBC said, do you want to change your prediction? You know, the, and then a- after Access Hollywood, like, are you sure you're still going with that Trump pick? <laughs> and, you know, they made me rewrite and explain why he was going to win maybe five or six times over the next six months. It was really rough. But I realized that this is what was going to happen. And, and you know, it was funny. He should have, you know, if he was going to lose, you know, it was like that crazy Hillary video. She should have been up by 50 points in the polls. When she wasn't up consistently in the polls in the states that mattered, I thought to myself, the polling's wrong and we can be upset about the polling. But in some ways, the polling's right, because if she is, has this big advantage that she's supposed to have, it should be showing up even more than it is right now. And that's when I realized, you know, no, I'm, I'm, I'm doubling down on this bet. And um, like I said, I, I think that most of the promises and, and overwhelming most of his policies, I mean, for his Middle East policies, I'm over the moon about. I'm over the moon about, I, th- I think, the tax reform policy, very similar to this global entry thing, by the way. The tax reform uh-huh. spread the pain a little bit more to, to blue state elites. I'm happy about all those policies, and I don't care about his personality, and sometimes I like his personality, so it's a wash for me. Jake, yesterday, I love his speeches, like the hour-longs where he just goes on and on, like you never know what he's going to say, and I kind of love that because I I always think the reason why people were bored with politics is because we did have boring presidents. They weren't colorful. They were just whatever, decent, whatever. But Trump, there's an air about him and there's a flair about him that really I'm just, it's its incredible to watch every time. I mean, I watched a lot of the hour-long speech he made yesterday with his victory lap, his celebration. Uh, and by the way, the day after the Access Hollywood tape was released, I went on this podcast and I said, hey, where were the Democrats caring about morality when Clinton actually did stuff in the White House that was... Um, you know, he didn't get impeached, but was impeachable. Where was the outcry then? All these Democrats defended that. And it was ridiculous to see them over, you know, react to the tape. Uh, I know that you're with CNB or you're, you're now doing your own show, Novak Now. And you just mentioned Israel. He moved the, he moved the embassy, which was a promise kept. Uh, I haven't really delved into this, but the, two, the solution he has for Israel and Palestine, I'm sure you've reviewed that on yeah. Novak Now. What, what's your thought and how has he handled Israel? Yeah, well, and, and I've written multiple columns about this um, peace plan and, and, and the process that went into it, so you can find that also on, on my CNBC page. There's a couple of things everyone needs to understand about this peace plan. I'm going to talk about the first thing, which is the most important thing. It's not about the Palestinians. We know the Palestinians were rejected. How do we know that? They have rejected statehood now or a path to statehood literally 12 times since 1937, offers made to them by first the British, then the U.N. and the United States, 12 times. And every time they reject an offer, Alex, it gets worse the next time, as it should. You know, they just they keep rejecting stuff and they're not willing and then they get an even worse thing. What's great about this peace proposal is that it was really meant for Israel's other Arab neighbors, the Saudis, United Arab Emirates, Oman, Egypt, in some ways, even Qatar, and Qatar is such a you know, difficult country to get a read on because they're mostly at the will of Iran, but they also try to play free agent. And even they had praiseworthy words to say about this peace plan. Now, all those countries I just mentioned, with the exception of Egypt, have no official diplomatic relationship with the Israel. And yet they have come out publicly and said to the Palestinians, make peace with this country. They make peace with this country, with this nation. So they've just de facto recognized Israel, which is a huge diplomatic step forward. And the Trump administration knows that. The Trump administration knows that that's the, that's the real pathway to peace. The Palestinians exist to kill Israelis. They exist to embarrass Israelis. I'm talking about the leaders, not the people. Right, right, right. And that's what they're over there for. 
and they're never going to say yes to anything. But if we can cut off their support, both financially and and in, in and in, in morally, you know, emotionally, in the Arab world, which is what's happening, they only have one funding source right now, and that's Iran through Qatar. That's the only people who are supporting the only nation that's really supporting the Palestinian cause right now. And that's bad because Iran's in trouble financially, and they've got other issues. Saudi Arabia closed that funding window maybe two, three years ago. So that's what the, the, the first plan is about. Second, what was really brilliant from the Trump administration point of view is they were holding off on this plan because Israel keeps having elections. They've had a hard time. It's not like Iowa. It's not because they can't count right. It's because there's just a, a real polarization in Israel within the right. The, Israel is a mostly right-wing country. It's like 65% right-wing, which in this country would be you know, a huge, huge majority. But the Trump administration didn't want to look like they were meddling in elections. One of, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel's number one opponent, Benny Gantz, a few weeks ago thought he was going to out BBBB. He was going to say, I want to annex these West Bank territories and make them part of Israel proper, and I'll do it even better than Netanyahu, thinking he would pick off some right-wing voters. The problem for him is that it, he trapped himself. He didn't realize that the response to that was going to be from the Trump administration, hey, wait a minute, both major leaders in Israel, the opposition and the prime minister, are both in favor of this annexation policy? Great, now we can release our peace plan, and no one can say we're meddling in the election. And Gantz was caught with his pants down on that. He was forced to come to Washington. He was forced to praise Trump, which is going to lose him all the left-wing support he had in the United States from left-wing Jewish groups. And he's finished. Now, he might do halfway decently in the election in March, but I don't think you could ever be leader of Israel anymore after that. So those are two things people really need to understand about this plan. It's not about the Palestinians. We know they'll always say no. And the Trump administration played this very, very well as far as the timing is concerned. Well, and I truly believe, and I haven't really said this here, uh, but I truly believe that if he wasn't a fan of Trump, Netanyahu would not be, you know, indicted on corruption. I feel like that was driven because... He does like Trump. I, I have to believe there's a tie there, tie in there. Well, the, the Israeli left, like I said, it's about 35 percent. Israel has this great, has, great, has a great level of democracy. Arab Israeli citizens are allowed to vote, and they do vote. The sad thing is that they throw their vote away all the time. Either they don't show up, they have pretty low turnout, or they vote for groups that are anti-Israel, literally voting for, for party leaders who want to destroy Israel. So they ruin their vote, and they ruin their chance for any advancement. Although, compared to other Arabs living in the rest of the Arab world, Israeli Arabs have great freedoms and great wealth, by the way, compared right. to their, their neighbors across the border, but because they still get some of the benefits of democracy. But so when you strip out that 15 percent of the vote, that's the Arab vote, you've got a country that's about that. That's very, very that's very right wing or center right. But the Israeli left, just like in this country, controls the news media, with the exception of one outlet, which happens to be the most popular newspaper. The Israeli and, and that news media and that, that news media and that elite that's of the old left, because it used to be more of a leftist country, still, still thinks they have the divine right to run the country. So the fact that, that Netanyahu is so strong among the people, is so strong and so friendly with, the, with, with President Trump, enrages them even more. And yes, I think it did force them to ratchet, ratchet up their attack on Netanyahu. Now, the timing has worked out a little bit better for Netanyahu than I thought. It now feels like a million years ago that the indictment came down, even though it was really like a month and a half ago. And it'll be even further in the distance on March 2nd when they come to vote. It's cost them some support. There are going to be some people who will not vote for the Likud, even though they like his policies, because they just don't like the taint of, a, of an indictment on him, which, by the way, is a, is a trumped-up charge. We're talking about – they're basically trying to unseat the prime minister of one of the most fastest-growing economies, over $100,000 in gifts for things that, that didn't happen anyway. 
You know, I mean, it's a stupid charge. Uh, And people like Mark Levin have done a very good job of outlining the baloneyness, you know, the the falsehoods in in the charges. But it's going to hurt him. But nevertheless, even with all this stuff hanging over them, the last two election results have been very clear. Most of the country is right wing. There's about 65 seats out of the 120 seats in the Israeli parliament, which is called the Knesset, that are right wing. The problem is those 65 seats can't get together because there are some internal facts and personal problems going on. It's, imagine if Trump had to deal with the Mitt Romneys of the uh-huh. world to create, to, you know, to get to win the White House. That's the way it is in Israel, and so that's what's going on right now. But you're absolutely right. They've ratcheted it up because even though they are a minority in the country and they have no political power, they have cultural power. They control the television networks. They control most of the newspapers. And they've been left out of power for a long time by Netanyahu and the world and the Israeli world has seen how unimportant they really are. Well, and let's uh, let me focus on Obama for a second. I know people hate about the whataboutism, but um, Obama, I, wasn't there rumors that he was funding like opposition against Netanyahu? I, I think I heard that while he was president. Uh, but the other big thing that he did was the Iran deal. And I've always thought you go around Congress. How is that not an impeachable offense? Now, maybe people will disagree. Oh, no, the Iran deal wasn't impeachable. But the way he did it certainly might have been. Would you agree? Um, listen, as we've unfortunately learned in the last few months, you can impeach a president pretty much for anything you want. It doesn't make it right. Um, th- th- there's a couple of things to touch on. First of all, it's no rumor. It's a documented fact that, that, that Barack Obama used State Department funds to help advise the opposition to Netanyahu in the 2013 uh, election. He, he, you know, he, Netanyahu now, this, he's the longest serving prime minister in the history of Israel, which is amazing in a country. If you know Jewish people in this country, you know, two Jews, 17 opinions. The fact that anyone could, ha- to, could win so many elections is pretty impressive considering the Jewish electorate. He was prime minister from 96 to 99, then they, they voted him out. But now he's been prime minister uh, since early 2009, straight through. Um, and so his first reelection in this second term, in, this, in the second wave of his career, was 2013. And Barack Obama absolutely, this is documented fact, absolutely used State Department funds to help try to advise the opposition. Uh, and it was, by the way, an absolute rout. Netanyahu won in a, in a tremendous landslide in 2013. Um, so that's one thing. Now, you could say that's, I don't know if that's impeachable, but it's, it's, it's really, it was really outrageous. This is a, an ally of the United States uh, and getting involved in their election in that way. On the Iran deal, the things that were impeachable were, were the things that we have found out since from sources that are far from conservative. You have the Politico report from a couple of years ago that showed that the Obama administration routinely ignored and told the FBI to stand down on a number of investigations of Hezbollah, which is the main terrorist arm of, of Iran, Hezbollah activity in this country – during the time of the negotiation of the Iran deal, because they didn't want to anger the Iranians and didn't want, to get, didn't want anything to get in the way of that deal. And we're talking about terrorist uh, money uh, laundering. We're talking about other kinds of activities. And again, this is from Politico, far from a conservative source. There's no doubt in my mind that it's a true story, and it's probably worse. Now, that's impeachable, Alex. Now, that, to, to, to put the, the safety of the American people... In, in jeopardy for a deal that also puts the safety of the American people in jeopardy. Because remember, even if Iran never gets a nuclear bomb, the Iran deal gave them tens of billions of dollars, maybe up to $150 billion, for which I promise you they did not build roads, streets, and sewers. They, built, they, they, right. they increased their terrorist foot, footprint in the Middle East with that money. So to me, that's impeachable. That is something that if the Republican establishment Republicans, who have you know, started this interview bashing, had their, you know, had their, had their heads out of the sand – 
should have been aware of. Somebody in the intelligence community should have and probably did alert the Republicans' establishment uh, in 2014 about this. Nothing was done about it. That is much more impeachable, even if the stuff they said about Trump is true in Ukraine, and it certainly was a cherry-picked amount of, of, of untruths. But the fact that this is a liberal organization that came out with this report says to me that they had an impeachable offense on Obama on this. And, of course, it was never carried out. And, and most people, most Americans, even really right-wing Americans, don't even know anything about the story I just told you. But look it up, Politico, Hezbollah, Obama, Iran deal. Google that now, and, and you'll, you'll get a good education. It's very scary to think about that, that, that our lives will be put in jeopardy by the president of the United States. And yet today they think Trump's putting our— our, our lives in jeopardy, which I feel is the complete opposite. I mean, I, I just think he's doing things that have never been done before to benefit Americans. Now, uh, you know, Jake, you sound like you're a talk show host, so I guess that's why you uh, <laughs> you host Novak now. And where can people find that? Um, well, it's on actually, this is, it's a little bit of a program that's a little bit more catered to the Jewish community, although I don't use any words or language that anyone, uh, you know, that everyone can understand. Um, it's on something called the Nachum Siegel Network, but if you do Novak Now archives, you can find all my programs there. We, 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 uh, we uh, come up with a new broadcast every, every week at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Mondays. Um, and sometimes I have guests, but most of the time it's me talking about issues. Um, and, for example, it's stuff that you don't have to be Jewish or even know a lot about Israel to understand. I spent most of my time talking about the Bernie Sanders campaign in, in my last broadcast and explaining why. I mean, what we really have right now, sadly, for example, is the most anti, virulently anti-Israel candidate in the history of the United States, who is now basically the, the de facto frontrunner for one of our two major parties. This is a very scary time. The fact that he was born a Jew is obviously giving him a pass on a, for, on a, for a lot of this for, from other people, not from me. Um, anyone who knows their Jewish history knows that some of the greatest enemies of the Jewish people have sprung from Jewish wombs. So it's not necessarily a different, it's not a change in, in, in our history. But the fact is, uh, that was one of the things I talk about. Just to give you an example of the kinds of things I talk about. Um, and this week I'll probably talk uh, about, about some of the things that I've written about now this week, which, uh, which are a little bit more about the, the national election. And I'll start beating the drum for the Israel uh, election, which comes up again on March 2nd, 2nd. So we're really only a few weeks away from that. So, yeah, that's where you can hear me. And, again, if you just do Jake Novak, N-O-V-A-K, on, and CNBC on Google, you'll see seven, eight years' worth of my editorials there, and you'll get an idea of where I'm coming from. And uh, Jake can be followed at Jake, Jake, NY, at Jake, Jake, NY. Uh, Jake, I, I didn't want to let you go without talking about this for a quick second because we did really kick this off with immigration. Um a lot of it has been made about the Mexico remittances this week, and it sounds like you might have a thought on that. But to me, I think that's a good thing that there are people willing to work here in America. It's just now we got to get them legalized. Yeah, and I think that there needs to be, you know, I, I, I'm a mostly libertarian conservative. I never like to hear the words come out of my mouth where I say I want more taxes. But, you know, I worked with Larry Kudlow for many years, and, and one of the things we agreed on is that we don't want taxes to be raised. But if there are people who are not paying taxes that, that, are, not, that are getting away with the burden and the burden is going on too many other people, then we need to figure out how to, how to, how to even the burden without overall raising taxes. And one of the ways that we can pay for the wall, one of the ways that we can pay for our boosted immigration enforcement is by taxing the remittances. And one of the ways that we can absolutely put pressure on Mexico, if, if the money, a huge part of, of Mexico's economy relies on those remittances, 
And if we tell the Mexicans that unless you continue, because they've been cooperative lately, as you know, unless you continue pushing these caravans out of your country, keeping this, this, this you know, throng from our southern border from getting there in the first place, we're going to tax the remittances that you rely on, and you're going to get 10, 13, 15 percent less. And I think that that will really, really work. And I think that maybe the way that President Trump on the campaign trail sales says, hey, this is how I meant Mexico is going to pay for this wall. And, and for me, I think that that would be a smart message for him to start getting out now because, you know, the, the Democrats are going to try to hit him on that. And to me, that's really important. This is an economic story. I don't want to raise taxes, but if we're raising taxes on you and me to pay for a wall that Mexico isn't doing a good enough job of making it unnecessary, then, then Mexico should have to pay a little bit more. Well, and, and so the tax itself would hurt Mexico, not the person sending the remittance, or, or would it hurt both parties? Well, it would hurt. It would hurt the people receiving the remittance. That's 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 for sure. But um, you know, again, if they're going to have illegal immigrants come to this country, right. work here, and send money back, anything that they get is a net gain for their economy and a net loss for us. You know, it's it's it, it, we we lose that money. I mean, if they're living five or six to a house or five or six to an apartment. So they can send their money back. From a personal standpoint, I admire that. This is someone who's willing to work and exactly. support their family. Good for them. And I don't want to denigrate that. But we lose that money, Alex. That's gone. That's money that could be going to our banks. That could be going to investment into our infrastructure. Instead, it's going into Mexico's. Now, that's probably nothing we can fix. But what we can fix is we can say, like, look, we've got to keep some of this money in this country because if you weren't an illegal alien, then that money would be taxed like anybody else's. And because right. you're not making that much money, it would be a nice low tax. I'm going to tax you at, I mean, imagine if you only had to pay 13% total tax, not federal, total tax on your money. That, that, I'd take that deal. I'm sure you would too. So the thing is, that's, that's where fairness comes in. It's about tax fairness, not about tax hikes. And I, got to, I know you got to go in a minute, but I got to imagine that the fact that the remittances are up means that the economy's good here, that they're able to send more, that they're able to work harder. Um, and as I said at the beginning of the question, we should just legalize them now. Well, you know, yes and no. I mean, what, what we're, this is a really remarkable. For the first time in history, we're seeing a booming American economy while at the same time illegal immigration is overall down. Because we are seeing, ever since Mexico started to cooperate with us, we are seeing now, as the president said in the State of the Union, we are seeing less um, people coming over the border on, at the southern border now, even though our economy is booming. You know, the best way in the past to stop illegal immigration was for us to have an economic crash. So it was kind of like, boy, we have to have both. I mean, can't we have one without the other? And I think we're getting that now. So I'm happy that our economy is booming. I think there's got to be a way for us to figure out how to make this right. I think uh, some kind of taxation and then some kind of way to, to we, we, really, before we start saying, hey, you're already here, we're going to legalize you, we need to have that security at the southern border. You know, for years I kept saying, yeah, yeah, we'll have, we'll have border security, but they insist on doing the amnesty first. What they don't seem to get through their heads is, no, do the border security first. Then we can talk about amnesty. As long as I know those borders aren't secure, you cannot lure more people into this country with promises of amnesty. And why they can't put the cart, why they keep putting the cart before the horse is incredibly beyond me. Although, I mean, I know the reason why. It's, right, it's, to it's, get they're, votes. They're, yeah, yeah, they're trying, to, they're trying to pick up votes. But it's, that's, that's the disaster right there. They keep not understanding we must have the border security first. Then we can talk about amnesty. And they can't just promise it. They've got to do it. And illegal immigration, when those want to drive here in New York, you actually get to do voter registration. Funny how that yeah. works, Jake. And I got breaking yeah. news for you. 
earlier today, and I, I don't know if you're going to write about it. Vindman is gone. Colonel yeah. Alexander, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. Sorry, Mister, you know, Lieutenant Colonel. Uh, and then now Gordon Sondland's gone. So he's fired two guys that were witnesses in the hearing, and uh, he's just getting rid of people left and right now, which is kind of fun to watch him get rid of the deep state. Although Sondland is a surprise because that was his hire. Yeah, it should have been done a long time ago. Uh, look. As anyone who knows the, the Trump campaign and Trump people knows, and, and, and this is not meant to be a nasty snipe, it's just the truth. The Trump team was not prepared to win the election. I think President Trump was. I think maybe a couple, I think Steve Bannon was. But the folks who, who that, that skeleton staff that he had basically running his campaign were not prepared. They did not have a team ready to go. Now, that in some ways speaks well of them. They, they, were, for, they were focusing on the campaign and not, and not the victory. And that's fine. But... They absolutely staffed up the administration incorrectly, not understanding that the real allure of President Donald Trump was his promise to clear out the swamps, promise to get rid of these bureaucrats. I, I lived in D.C. for a number of years. The sense of entitlement these people have, and this goes for both parties, the sense of self-importance these people have. I once spent one of the worst evenings of my life with two guys, and their job was to be the historians of the Department of Energy. And it was all I could do all night to tell them that we don't need you, and we don't need your Department of Energy. I, you, my tax money needs to be paid to write down the the history of the Department of Energy? Won't somebody do that for free for a PhD dissertation at Clarion University or something? I mean, it was ridiculous. So, the, But these people think they're important, and they think they have the right for their incredible benefits, for their incredible power, for their incredible perks. They believe they are born to that right, and President Trump has a winning ticket, a winning message if he continues to say to these folks, no, the people elected me and a few of these senators here, and, and we are the ones who are going to make this policy. You are not going to undermine me and them, not because of who I am and not because I'm so great, but just because this is who the people elected, not you. And that is something that people in D.C. from both parties the John Brennans of the world especially, don't understand. I don't think Mitt Romney understands it. I sure as heck know that some of these other never-Trumper types don't understand it. And they're unable to even hide why. You know, the Jennifer Rubens out there can't help herself talking about how everyone who opposes her and supports Trump is uneducated. You know, I, I dare her... To, to try to match my education or the education of a Victor Davis Hanson. Good luck, Miss Rubin. Uh, you will lose. I promise you I am more educated than you from my yeshiva education all the way up to my Ivy League education to what I learned on the streets of, of Oklahoma City and, and Norfolk, Virginia. I promise you I'm more educated, and I promise you Victor Davis Hanson makes me look like an idiot. So don't play that game. And this is a message that Trump has to, has to get out in the next couple of months. And I think he will. And one of my favorite things he ever said was, you know, the, people can sit in there air-conditioned offices and make those decisions, but I'm not going to listen to them. And I thought that was such a poignant moment and such a true statement. So uh, Jake Novak, who actually has a relativity to Robert Novak, thanks for joining me tonight, and please do come back. I'd love to have you. I'd appreciate it. Robert Novak is rolling over his grave for all my pro-Israel statements. He was a really virulent anti-Israel guy. Other than that, he was pretty smart, though. <laughs> we'll give <laughs> and, him that. And i got to commend CNBC. Pretty fair reporting uh, out there on Trump the whole way through. So congrats on that as well. Thank you. I'm very, I'm very grateful to them, yes. And uh, I'm Alexander Garrett. We will talk to you soon um, on Keeping Real with Alex Garrett. Thank Man, you. this was so timely. I'm going to put it up tonight. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You got it. I'll text you the link. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.